Guys, we're going to jump right in this morning, and we're going we're gonna to be in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there. Uh, if you have a digital Bible, you can use that, whatever it is that works for you. Uh, I will have some scriptures on the screen, but I want to encourage you to uh, work through your scriptures and work through um, the words on the page. It's very important. And when we get to Ephesians chapter 6, uh, there's too much there for me to to jam onto this screen. So anyway, let's start with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and through all. So last week, Jacob Dolezal gave a great message where he talked about uh, the strength that we have together, and obviously the foundation of that message is centered in unity, right? It's centered in this idea that we are a together people or that we need to be a together people because this is really how we're going to get through life. How many of you know that you cannot do this alone? How many of you actually believe that? <laughs> That's a whole different thing, right? We, we, we know it in our head, but believing it with our heart and believing it with our lives and believing it with our actions becomes a very different thing. Uh, but we talked about unity last week, and what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about unity in real life. So I want to I be a bit gritty with you this morning, uh, a bit real with you this morning, because uh, this is one of those issues that the church as of today, and especially in the American church, it struggles with true unity. We love the title. We love the concept. We like to wear the t-shirts, but we don't like to do the stuff that is required for unity, okay? And so uh, we'll start by just showing that unity is in fact the goal. From Ephesians 1 or 4, 1 through 6, we see that we are not only a people who have been given unity or been placed in a, in a unity, but we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And the knowledge of that unity is so important because, contrary to popular belief, there is only one body. There is only one spirit. There is only one hope of our calling. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And so we are called to be unified in this. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 says this, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. In this, the Apostle Paul is talking to Gentiles as well as some Jews, but he's talking primarily to Gentiles about the dividing wall that God has broken down in the gospel that now Gentiles and those who will put their trust in King Jesus can be one with what the scripture calls the holy ones or the saints, right? And the, that is those who live by faith and trust God. So Jesus broke down the barrier of dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man or one new human, right? The 
thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Now, one thing that is hard for us to wrap our minds around is this phrase here that says that we, uh, he abolished in the flesh the enmity, and then he defines it. He says, the enmity that God abolished in the flesh is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And we go, what? Did God abolish the laws and did he abolish the commands? He definitely abolishes them in such a way that you think you can earn salvation through them. That in such a way that makes you believe you can earn your way back to God or you can live rightly and, and you don't need a savior. This is nonsense, okay? But it is my understanding, and this is a very interesting concept and a hard concept at times, but it is my understanding that the division in the garden between the tree of life, uh, something that represents King Jesus and life and abundance, and the law and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something that in effect represents laws and commands and thou shalts and thou shalt nots, one leads to life which is trusting in King Jesus, and one, this abundance of laws and commands, this abundance of do's and don'ts, this leads to death, okay? It leads to death. When the law is given, spring, sin springs forth to life, and since sin is alive, we all die, okay? This is exactly what was told to Adam and Eve when they ate of that tree, that they would in fact die. And so, Jesus came and he abolished this idea so that in himself he might make the two into one. There's no more separation. There's no more Jews who keep this kind of code, and then there's the Gentiles that are all of the devil, right? It's one people all together. What a beautiful idea. So unity in the first passage, unity in this passage, one new man, one body, to God through the cross. The next passage in Ephesians chapter 4, go to the next screen, 17 through 19 confirms it yet again. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have, be, have given themselves over to sensuality and practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. We're no longer called to walk in this, but instead we're called to walk in the light as Christ is in the light, and this is what it means to be a unified people. Uh, guys, is Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 up there? Maybe I put it up there, maybe I didn't. There you go. And this, again, confirms this concept. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. And what were those people, what were those groups given for? Read it with me, church. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to, say it really loud, the unity of the faith. So this is really important. Because what's important right now is that we are in a journey. We're making progress towards something beautiful, which is the unity of the faith. Are there pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, and evangelists around? Are we then still working towards the unity of the faith? Yes. What is the unity of the faith? If we understand it rightly, 
Paul is going to explain it, but if we understand it rightly, it is maturity. It is looking like Jesus. So he says the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So unity comes with the knowledge of Jesus to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we're talking about the idea that unity is important. Unity is the the plan that God has. Unity is the goal of the tools and the resources God has given to the church. Pastors, teachers, apostles, and prophets, all this stuff. They've, they've been given a task. They are working together to grow us into maturity, which is code for unity. We're growing up into maturity. And that maturity is not just any maturity. It's not like the difference between me and my daughters. Okay, well, I'm an adult, so I'm mature enough. No, the stature of Jesus Do you see how big that is? The maturity that we're attaining to is this, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Is that a high order? Yes, it is a high order. It's intended to be a high order. It's intended to be a high order, and it's intended to be one that God calls you to, gives you tools to attain, and will not stop until it is reached. These are vital things, but we're not there, church. We we tend to rest on our laurels and we think, well, I'm good enough. Or we do what we see in the New Testament, we go, I'm better than that guy, right? Well, that gets you far, right? I'm better than that guy. That's not what we're called to. We're supposed to be looking like Jesus, the word for unity here in Ephesians is actually only used twice, Ephesians 4.3, and 4.13, uh, it's pronounced something like henotes, and the word, uh, the word means or is used to describe a condition of harmony or oneness, a condition of harmony or oneness. How many of you know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not divided in any way? That's the level of unity we're looking for, right? One serves the other who serves the other who always listens and always is working for the ultimate will and the ultimate goal and the ultimate plan. This is what it means to to go for this kind of level of unity. So harmony and oneness. And this is what we are called to. It describes, uh, it's described as something uh, existing or establishing, but also unity is something that God has given and done, existing and establishing, but it's also something that we must maintain. And there's where it gets really crazy. Because unity is like, well, it's kind of like water on a hot day. It evaporates. It goes away. We've got to maintain it. We've got to work really hard to to pull this together. And God has given us the commands. God has given us the things that we do uh, without looking like a list of do's and don'ts, without listing, uh, looking like, uh, you know, all of these thou shalts and thou shalt nots, he has given us the steps that we do to accomplish this. Uh, I'm going to take a, a slight break here to share with you that the steps he's giving us look far more, and this, is, this may be interesting to some of you, um, is far more like what Aristotle would call virtue ethics than it is what we would know as puritanical ethics. Okay. The Puritans just basically came in and jammed a bunch more rules into everything, and get, they get confusing. Like, I'll give you an example of one, and this is where this message starts to take the turn for very candid and very real. 
uh, we have this idea in our culture today, an idea of modesty. How many of you know that? An idea of modesty. How many of you are grateful for an idea of modesty? In some sense, yes. There's this Jim Gaffigan bit that cracks me up. He talks about going to a water park. And he says, there's people at water parks that walk around with a confidence that they should not have. (laughs) Right? It's just absolutely amazing. And in some of those cases, you're like, yes, there's more modesty needed here in the culture. Right? But this idea of modesty is funny because it's actually just a cultural thing. And we've got to be super careful with it. Have you ever watched National Geographic and looked at... uh, tribes in Africa as they videotape these tribes? How modest are those people? Dang, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Right? Those people walk around with a confidence they shouldn't have, right? Okay, so we look at that. Let's take other parts of the world where women are dressed with uh, burkas and full coverings. That's one form of modesty. You've got other parts of the world where people's, women's uh, stomachs are visible and and all of this. You've got parts of the world where uh, men walk around, you know, with barely anything on. It's fully acceptable. We live in a culture today where it goes, hold on a second, in America, you've got to do at least some checking on what this is. What is modesty? Do we even know? We don't know, is my argument. We don't know because it's cultural, it's puritanical, it has nothing to do with an absolute. It's just some nonsense that we've made up. Now, am I suggesting that people walk around with no clothes on? No, I'm not suggesting that. I am suggesting that you pay attention to the culture you live in and you care for the people around you. I think you ought to do this, right? But this is, this is something that keeps coming up in my house. You know why it keeps coming up in my house? Because I'm, I'm the only guy in the whole place. Right? Now, well, well, yes, I have a dog now. He's a boy. We just had him neutered too, so I'm not sure that counts anymore. But anyway, doesn't matter. So anyway, so we've got, we've got all this going, right? And my daughters are always talking as things happen. So daddy walks through the house without his shirt on. And what happens? My daughter looks at, his, looks at her sisters and says, well, guys are allowed to do that, but girls... I said, where did you hear that? I said, now I'm not suggesting you go walking through without your shirt on, right? But where did you hear that that's acceptable or that is not, right? Because this is something that becomes promoted, some idea that becomes promoted. Here is where puritanical ethics and weird subjective modesty ideas need to be thrown out and we need to start working through what I will title virtue ethics which is more of an Aristotelian concept and that is this and by the way this is hundreds of years before Christ okay so this Aristotelian concept says this virtue ethics concept says is your action virtuous and what does it mean for an action to be virtuous does it first care about the tribe In other words, does it care about the others around you? Are you trying to make them stumble? Are you you actually caring for them in any way, shape, or form? Ethic number two is, how does this serve your neighbor, the person right in front of you, right? And last, last, way back here, a race to the back of the line, as I like to say, is, is it virtuous for you? Is it good for you? You know who agrees with this form of ethics? God, well before Aristotle. When he said, all, Jesus says this, of course, is an echo of it, but he says, all the law and the commandments hang on what two commandments? 
This comes from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm adding Jesus' words in here. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And which of, the, which of those two commandments includes love me as me? And do what I think is right for me? And do what's best for Nathan? Oh, crap, it didn't enter. It didn't enter. Because it is love God and love neighbor. And this is virtue. This is what is best for others around you. What is best in God's sight. Now, I know that that sounds like a slight derail when I talk about modesty and virtue things. But what I want you to understand is that we are called to a place of unity. We're called to something bigger. And that unity is going to start in a very real way. It's going to start by asking what pleases God. And then it's going to ask what is pleasing, what is good, what is for the betterment of your neighbor. And it's not going to look at you in this mirror, okay? And this is really, really challenging, of course, okay? So we've got the goal of unity. That's very clear. We've got that unity means maturity, that maturity is to the stature of Jesus. We're looking at this full level. If we follow Jesus, we see virtue ethics clearly because Jesus lays down his life for us, right? He puts himself at the farthest back point of the line for you and for me. It's an amazing idea, okay? And then he calls us, the Apostle Paul is speaking to this church in the, in the region of Ephesus, or these churches, and he calls us to the same things. And this is where we're going to start getting to the nitty-gritty. Here's what we find in Ephesians 4, and guys, we're going to put up 14 through 16. 14 through 16. For he himself, is that right? Yep. I might have labeled it wrong. I have a habit of doing that. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16 starts as, as a result. There we go. Thank you. As a result, we are no longer to be children. What is that calling us to? Maturity. Done. Maturity. So, so much for this idea I get so fed up with these ideas. You, you guys know me. You've heard me hobby horse on these things. You should be childlike in the fact that you're humble. You should not be childish. Okay? And most of the American church is identified by childish faith, by stupidity and foolishness. And this is not what God calls us to. As a matter of fact, he says grow up. Okay? He says to grow up. That's what our call is, right? As a result, we are no longer to be children. Later on, Paul's going to say, you're children of God. He means two very different things. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Stop there. Number one thing that goes against unity in this right now it's not the primary thing that goes against unity, but the number one thing in this verse is that we are not mature enough to understand what is right and what is wrong. So when it comes to unity, what happens in the church is we bicker and we fight with each other and we say, I'm right, they're wrong, and that's all there is to it. And you know what that leads to? Division, chaos, and people leaving and going to 40 different directions. That's what happens in the church. This is what's happening in the church today, right? People just look at each other and go, I don't like that. You don't like it or you know that it's wrong? Which is it? You don't like it or you know that it's wrong? There's a big difference here, 
There is a big difference. And you would not believe, I've been in ministry now for 24 years. I know what this is going to sound like before I even go there, but I'm just going to sit here and do this anyway. I've been in ministry for 24 years. We planted the church almost 12 years ago. I have gone through the roller coaster so many times I'm sick to my stomach about whether or not something is right or whether or not somebody dislikes it. I've been through this so many times. And you know what, you know what matters to, to the person who just doesn't like it? That they don't like it. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what's right or wrong. And guess what? When we don't care what's right or wrong, we're tricked by every wind of doctrine, and it does not matter, and unity will not be reached. I keep doing this. I keep walking away. I go this way and that way, and it doesn't matter. And you know what the problem is? It's always Nathan's fault. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, it sucks. I don't love it. But anyway, you get my point, right? So the waves are carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We're going to see a fix to all of this at the end. So please hang with me. God has a plan, and he didn't leave us in this letter without the full plan. By trickery of men, by craft, craftiness and deceitful scheming, but here's the antidote here, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. I know what truth, Nathan, means. My truth. No, I don't mean your truth. I don't care about your truth. You shouldn't care about your truth. You should care about the truth. Did you know that? Now, everybody can say amen, and Nathan will say amen. But how do we know what the truth is versus what your truth is? How do we know? Let me tell you the puzzle here. You got to grow up to find out. Ugh. I don't want to grow up. How many of you have kids? How many of you have kids? Come on, raise your hands if you have kids. How many of you wish that they would just grow up quickly? Yeah, you guys have newborns. You're like, grow up anyway, right? I wish that they would grow up. How many of you have grown kids that you wish would grow up? Mark Ryan, you better raise your hand. Anyway, <laughs> he's got his son right next to him. You've got grown kids that you wish would grow up. Maturity is the only way we're going to get to this idea of truth and then it done in love. But here's what I want you to understand. When we're talking about unity and when we're talking about what the Apostle Paul is talking about, we need to understand he has a truth in mind. He has or a set of truth in mind, which would be Jesus' truth, right? You, every one of you, has been brought into one family with one Lord through one faith and one baptism under one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. That is truth. But when we divide that God into different factions and different opinions and different ideas, we are messing the whole system up. Because what we're saying is we live under one Lord, but we live under multiple faiths multiple baptisms, multiple this and multiple that. No. And in order to uh, correct all of this trickery and this nonsense, we have to speak truth in love. That means what is implied here is that that truth has everything to do with these ideas that there are absolutes concerning. There are absolutes of doctrine. There are absolutes of uh, what God is planning. And then there are schemes and there are deceptions. 
You have to understand this. So, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Raise your hand or if you're a joint in this body supplying things. Every one of us, guys, every one of us, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Listen, we don't do this. We're no longer children. We correct childishness by speaking truth in love. Truth in love comes into it in all this way. All of us play a part. All of us are needed in this system. Okay? Let's go to the next passage. Go on. Uh, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, Jew and Gentile, we've talked about it, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He brought us to peace. That's the already done part that we have to maintain. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by its having put to death that enmity. Next passage. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Let's take a second and talk about this. The Gentiles were walking a certain way and they had been redeemed. God has this way throughout his word of using the same identifier for two very different groups, right? So Gentiles can mean those without God in the world. And for God to divide, to break down the barrier wall between the Jew and the Gentile, he doesn't mean those without God in the world now. He means that those who will trust him, there is no division. There is nothing separating them from God's chosen people. They are now one with him, okay? But these people were Gentiles, and they used to walk a very ugly way. How many of you used to walk an ugly way? Yeah, yes. So, he says that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, immaturity, ignorance, they all go hand in hand, because of the hardness of their heart. This gets us to fun interpretations of the Bible. When we th see things that say you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, or you're dead in your trespasses and sins, or instances like this where you're hard of heart, what is actually meant here about the hardness of their heart? They were immature and unredeemed. They weren't brought into anything, right? They were immature. And now that they're brought into this, you no longer walk this way. It's not that they were people that had hardened hearts that could never be changed. They obviously surrendered to Jesus, and that obviously changed. That heart was softened. We have to understand the whole of God's word in order to interpret these little segments, right? So he says, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. This is funny to me, that the world separated from God gives itself over to sensuality. Aren't they already fully there? No. Nobody is fully as evil as they could be. Nobody is fully as evil as they could be. How many of you know that? Yeah. You should be glad they're not fully as evil as they could be. They would have killed you by now. 
okay? Nobody is as fully evil as they could be, but they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. All of this says it's about me, 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 me. What does virtue ethics say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. And where do you enter the picture? Not even sure yet, okay? So go on to the next passage. Verse 20 through 24, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, I love this, that's your former manner of life, this division, this chaos, this sensuality, and this sin, now you're a unified bunch, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You've been made new, so it's time to walk in it. Okay? Do we see it? Now, I promise you, we're getting to this point about unity. We're getting to the nitty-gritty of all of this stuff. And it gets hard. But there's a solution at the end. Watch this. Verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each other. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Who is your neighbor in this passage? If you're a member of them, who is your neighbor? Fellow Christians. Fellow Christians. It's not the guy next door, okay? Your neighbor is literally a Christian. By the way, this is common throughout the Old Testament, common through the New Testament. Your neighbor is a fellow believer, Okay? There are foreigners, you should be kind to those. There are people outside of the faith, you should be good to those. But your neighbor here is the person that you should lay aside speaking falsehood. Instead, speak truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Why is it so important to be truthful with one another? Because you're the same dang people. And if you're not truthful with each other, how is this system going to stand? It's not. It's divided. It's going to break. It's going to falter. Here is another insight into pastoral ministry. Many times the person who is required to speak truth to the neighbors of the church is the pastor alone. Because, are you okay with me being a little hard today? I'm serious. Answer my question, please. Okay. If you don't, you can walk, <laughs> right? But I'm going to be hard nonetheless. Here's what I want you to understand. Speaking truth to each other often lands on the role of the pastor because every person is scared of conflict. Suck it up. You need to look people in the eyes and say, that's not right. Why are you doing this? Why would you approach this this way? I have been in one-on-one -on -one sessions, I have been in church settings, I have been in meetings where the only person who lets people have it is me. And what do you got to do? You sit there and hope they actually hear the truth and not, Nathan's just a jerk. That's what you hope. That's not always what happens. I can tell you, the majority of people look at it and go, Nathan's just a jerk. It's fine. But I'm going to keep speaking the truth to each person. And we are called to do this with each other. Not put it off and let the pastor do it. Not push it off to some council somewhere who will correct all the issues. 
You want to know why there's so much trouble in the church world today? Because nobody deals with stuff. And I would argue, you don't deal with stuff. You don't deal with stuff. You sweep it under the rug. You sugarcoat it. You push it off. You let it go to somebody else. And why? Because you have been lied to with a deceitful scheme and trickery that as long as you sit quiet and always be there to support and love, you're being like Jesus. Bullcrap. You're not. You don't look a thing like Jesus. He turns tables. Yes, he's Lord of the temple. That's awesome. But Jesus has no problem confronting people. He has no problem confronting the woman caught in adultery by saying to her, go and sin no more. And he has no problem confronting the Pharisees by saying, if you have no sin, go ahead and throw your stones. But he confronts them both. He doesn't go, well, I guess I should just be more loving. Just sit back and let it go. This is nonsense, church. This is not how we live. And if you do this, you're believing a lie. Trust me. Verse 25, verse 26 goes on. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. That just said, I'm allowed to get angry. <laughs> no. it's Be angry and don't sin, right? There is a fine line here between my anger being righteous or being good or caring about truth and my anger just being me offended at something. You know why we can't walk in unity? Because we're angry because our feelings are hurt, not because we stand on the side of truth. This is a problem. This is a very, very big problem. The church is struggling with this because when we don't agree, we get angry and we walk away. Why? Because my truth is more important to me. No, you've let anger turn into sin and you've made a fool of yourself. And this is not good. Does that mean that pastors and teachers are always right when they do things and people are not? Heavens, no. Jesus is the only one who's ever been always right, okay? But please, we have got to be okay with the idea that we are not a sinful people propagating our own ideas and defending ourselves, but instead, we care about truth And when we get upset, we get upset because truth has been violated. And then we correct. And what do we correct with? Gentleness, not excommunication. Gentleness, not, that's it, you're dead to me. I've told you this a thousand times, church. My dad has always said that the Christian army is the only one who shoots its own wounded. I wish that that didn't have any truth in it. But it does. It hurts because that's what we do but we're not supposed to be that people. We are not supposed to sin in our anger and thus give the devil an opportunity. You want to know why it's so important to stay unified? Because otherwise, you're giving the devil an opportunity. Unity is very important, church. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. I have loved this passage since I was a kid. Paul is talking to the church How many times have you ever heard a pastor look at his congregation and say, I know some of you guys are thieves, stop doing it. No, it's assumed that you're already perfect. It's assumed that you're not doing anything wrong. That's not true either. And if we will change the expectations that every person in here is a sinner, 
that has been redeemed and still has proclivities towards it, but has been made new and is a child of God, if we understand that, we are going to treat each other very differently. Paul doesn't say, those of you who steal, how dare you get out of the church? Instead, he goes, I know you're stealing. Stop doing that. That's not what you do. That's not what we do. That's your former way of life. Stop living that way. This is what happens when the pastor or the leader or somebody looks at you and says, so this is what you're doing. You know that God says no to that. Stop that. They are not telling you they hate you. They are not telling you that you're a worthless sinner. They're just calling out what is not good. And what you ought to do is go, heard it loud and clear. I'll stop, I'll stop stealing. I heard it loud and clear. I'm going to stop that thing that, that God says is wrong. But why is the church all kinds of uh, disunified? Why is the church in all kinds of disarray? Because nobody wants to hear anything. You speak it to them. Don't do that anymore. They're like, how dare you? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Do you guys know that this is true? Or you just look at me like I'm crazy? Because this is true. It's true and it's very hard. It's very hard to navigate. Because attached with all of these things, attached with all of these things are people, love, emotions, relationships. The reason this is hard, screw it. The reason this is hard is because I've lost a ton of people that I love. All because they're arrogant. All because they would not listen. Because they would not submit and they would not change. And I don't mean do what I say because I say it. But simply because they just wouldn't humble themselves. They wouldn't grow up. Do you know that that's true? Maybe you don't. Shocker. It is. It happens all the time. And pastors live in silent desperation and misery because it happens repeatedly. It's obnoxious. It's frustrating. But guess what? What, it, what is viewed, the view of it is the correction comes, the person leaves, and the pastor is just out of his mind or wrong. And the truth is, he usually is sitting back hurting. Thank you, buddy. They're hurting. It's the same thing you do with your kids when you correct them and they say, screw you, mom. Forget you, dad. I hate you. How does that feel? It's miserable. My wife came to me the other day. She's lamenting and she said, it's really hard when you hear one of your kids that you give every bit of your life and heart and mind and soul to. You pour it out, and those kids look at you in a fit of anger when they sin and say, I hate you. You guys have felt that, I hope. I hope you felt it so you can know what it's like. But this is what we deal with. This is what happens all the time. And this is why unity is never reached. Because people are just fighting and squabbling and griping, and it never ends. But it's never seen from another side. It's never seen as truth. It's never seen as somebody who actually might, I know that this is hard for us to hear in American cultures too, that somebody might know more than you do. 
It's amazing. Parents know more than their kids, even if it's just by trial and error. We don't have it. We don't like it. We don't even listen now because of these things. I know. I got way too heavy and way too emotional there. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to, say this with me, church, share with one who has need. What is the motivation behind every command we've been given? Another person, every time. It's not about you. It has never been about you. It keeps being about caring and loving and sharing. Even if they don't care and love and share in return. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. I suck at this. Anyway. But only such a word as is good for edification. According to the need of the moment. So that it will give grace to those who hear. I hope you understand that edification is something far bigger than a pastor or somebody in your life giving you a bunch of compliments all the time. To edify somebody can come with a correction and can come with encouragement and can come with building them towards a direction. Please understand it. So therefore, edification might not sound so wonderful all the time. But it is there to build you up. It is there to give you grace. It is there to to see you on the right path. These are important things, and we're all called to them, okay? Why is it that unity is not reached? Because we just let our banter and our gossip and our tearing each other down, we let it come out all the time. Yeah, I know about Sally, but, but do you know what she did over here, right? And this unwholesome talk just, de- de- just devastates the, uh, the objective of unity. Sorry, guys. Go on to the next passage. Verses 30 through 32. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So what are we doing? We're not growing into maturity. We're not growing in unity. We're not showing love. And now we're grieving the Holy Spirit when this is our way of doing things. And it's not grieving the Holy Spirit because you disagree with Nathan. It's, dis- it's grieving the Holy Spirit when you can't live in unity. When you can't love one another. Because guess what else we're in the process of being? Mature. This is the time that we have to get along, not when we've got it all figured out. Do you know that? We're growing in unity while we're maturing. Not all the mature people are unified. That's not what the Bible says. We're we're to be unified as we mature. That's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know what Peter asked Jesus when Jesus said you're supposed to forgive your brother, you forgive forgive them of their trespasses. He said, how many times, Lord? Seventy times seven? I need the calculation, because when I'm done, I'm done, right? I need the exact number of times. And Jesus goes, you do it forever. You don't stop in this effort of forgiveness. Be kind to one another. That's easy sometimes. Be tenderhearted, not so much. Forgiving each other, but if you knew what they did to me, do you know why unity can't be reached? Because forgiving each other is very difficult. 
It's hard to look people in the eye and say, guess what? Even though you've hurt me, I forgive you. I'm going to talk about forgiveness and for, uh, repentance here in just a second. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. When did Jesus forgive you guys? While you were yet sinners. While you were yet in violation. So here's what I want to say about forgiveness and repentance. Our heart towards others should be a heart of forgiveness before repentance occurs. But repentance is necessary. Why is repentance necessary? Because if the young uh, son in the prodigal son story had never repented, turned around and came back, his father may have forgiven him, but he believed him to be dead. And he believed him to be lost. You know why unity is not reached in the church? People don't actually repent of their sins. You know what happens with your kids? Well, I hope this happens with your kids. I pray that this happens with your kids. But if your kids decide they hate you and decide they want to leave like the prodigal son story and they decide they want to go a different way, in the end, it's written in their DNA that you are their family. You belong to them and they belong to you. And hopefully what I pray is that they always come back. But guess what? Since the church doesn't actually view itself as a family, since this is just an extracurricular activity that we can come to and go from whenever we want and choose, the second we're inconvenienced, the second we're frustrated, what do we do? We walk away from the family and it doesn't matter because they're not family. They'll never see that guy again. I'm happy about this. That's the way we treat each other. This is pitiful, church. This is so downright pitiful that what we do is we go, oh, God says we're a family, but I ain't a family with that guy. We're supposed to be a family. I ain't dealing with that. And we walk away. And there's never any consequence for this, guys. There's never any consequence. There's just pain, and there's just unforgiveness, or there is lack of repentance, and it never ends. I know. Dang, Nathan, you're wearing us out today. Let's go on to the next passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And look at what he did by loving you. Gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do you know what laying down your life is? Not only is it the greatest form of love any man has ever known, it is a sweet-smelling aroma for your father. God has called you to lay it down and to love like his son did. And he wouldn't ask you this if it wasn't possible. But it's possible. So we got to walk in love. We got to do this, right? The answer to all of this, love God and love you. Love God and love your neighbor. That is the answer to literally everything we do. But it's love the way God defines it, not love the way we define it. So we go on to the next one. And this is where we start to get big. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I don't like this. Subject to one another? What if, that, what if it's Barney? I know what you're all thinking. That's easy to do. But what if it's Nathan? <laughs> I know, more laughs because I know what you're thinking. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So now we're doing it to grow up to maturity, to the stature of God, to not grieve the Holy Spirit, and because we actually fear our Lord. But we don't do any of it because we don't give a crap. 
to be honest with you. I know, hard. Now let's try to solve this puzzle. 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Do you know what the context of putting on the armor of God is? The chaos of disunity. It is not some ethereal, charismatic, weird spiritual battle that some idiot taught you about. Fine, the devil is prowling around. He wants to destroy you, but read it in context. The biggest problem you have about the schemes of the devil is each other fighting each other, hating each other, tearing each other down, never forgiving, never repenting, never caring for one another. And meanwhile, the world looks on and goes, you guys are all schmucks. You're all hypocrites. You don't even love each other. Do you know this is true? You know it's true? Because it is. You'll come to realize it's true. The longer you walk in the church, the more you'll see it, see it, unless we change it, and that is to walk in unity and put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, which is division first. Divide and conquer. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And there's where disunity starts. You know who my struggle is against? It's against you. No, it's not. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers of a very dark world who have a scheme they're pulling off. And that scheme is to rip you apart. To divide you from everybody who is claiming the name of Christ, who is loving God. So, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this is where we have to go on. And I'm sorry that I'm going as long as I am. But please stick with me on this. Verse 13. Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Resist what? Walking the way you used to walk. Fighting and bickering and sinning in anger. And having done everything to stand firm, Stand firm, therefore, and here's the solution to all of this. It is an armor that this whole army is called to put on. Not Nathan, not you, everybody. Stand firm, therefore, having girded, having girded your loins with truth. How can you speak truth in love if you don't have truth? Gird your loins with the truth. You have to go to God's word. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, what should you walk? Right with God. You should walk in right standing, but you should also walk knowing he made you perfectly right with him. Verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, this is why peace is written there, the gospel of peace is what is happening, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you are, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we will put on those things, if we will actually be a people who walk in righteousness, who put on truth, who put on a helmet of salvation and shoes of the gospel of peace, and we'll actually live out with the sword of God's Spirit, which is His Word, we know that it speaks truth. If we'll do that, we actually can win against all this nonsense. But while we're doing this and while we're questioning whether or not that's actually right, we're still bickering, we're still fighting, and we're still divided. 
And it's a, it's a pitiful mess. We're supposed to be a people completely different. When you have a problem, I should be the person who comes alongside you in that problem, doesn't condemn you, doesn't kick you out, but walks with you in whatever you're going through. In every way. But what do we do? I don't like you. I don't like this. I don't like that. And we hurt each other, church. We don't look anything like what we're supposed to look like when we walk like this. So what are we going to do as a church? What do we need to do as a church? We need to realize unity is absolutely paramount. It is something that was bought with Jesus' blood, and it is something we are called to preserve. What does it look like to preserve it? It looks like hard work. How many of you love hard work? Yeah, that's what I thought, <laughs> right? I'm just teasing. Uh, we don't like hard work all the time, though. And it is hard work to love each other, to care for each other, not to backbite, not to, not to slice each other and bite each other, all this stuff. It's hard work to do this. It's hard to walk in forgiveness. It's hard to repent when you know you're wrong. It's hard. It shouldn't be because you should be going to a loving family, Right? The reason why it's hard is because we've not also been good on the other side. We've not been compassionate and loving and gentle, tender-hearted. We've not been those things. So we are to walk in unity. Unity looks like maturity, the fullness of Jesus. In order to get there, we need to realize we have a very real enemy that wants to divide, and it's not Nathan, it's not the church, it's not people, past, present, or future. It is an enemy who loves to blow stuff up. And in order to survive it, we need armor. And we all need the armor, because we're all going to feel it. We're all going to experience it. We're all on the same battlefield, church. We've got to get there. I do, they'll just say this as they get the kids. I love you guys immensely. I have, I have loved every person who has ever walked in these doors. But I'm growing tired. I am hurting. And I'm not able to just keep going and pushing and acting like I can do all these things. So I am working through a lot of stuff. I have been wrestling for some time. And I've gone through these wrestles before. But I decided today in this message to do with you what I would ask you to do with everybody else in the church and that is, I decided I'd just be vulnerable with you. I'm just going to be vulnerable with you. I'm going to tell you what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and what I'm going through. And if you care, that's awesome. And if you don't, you don't. You just walk away. But it's proving the point that I'm making, right? And that is to be vulnerable, to walk with people as they struggle through these things, to walk with each other as we struggle through these things. We're living in a very, very weird time. And the church is seeing things that it's never seen before. Skepticism and doubt and chaos like never before. And we're sitting here constantly arguing about dumb stuff. 
constantly getting our feelings hurt and walking away from one another. In 24 years of ministry, I've been through a great deal of hurt. I've gone through ups and downs. In 11 years, almost 12 years, I've seen 500 people come through these doors. I'm probably being conservative with that number. 500 people come through these doors. Six years ago, seven years ago, I don't even remember what it is now. I've lost track of all these things. We had chaos and the church broke in half. I've been through more of it and more of it and more of it and more of it and I'm dying. I'm dying because I'm not, you can, you can look at me, I, I don't even know how to interpret the phases I'm seeing. I'll tell you what is true and I'll hope that you have compassion on me. I've gone through it and through it and through it and been, been viewed as the enemy almost every time. That's hard. And I'm growing tired. Don't know how to keep going. Don't know how to keep pushing forward. But you know what I do? I keep pushing forward because guess what I do? I love you. Even though I'm just a big old grumpy guy telling you a bunch of things you probably don't want to hear. I desperately love you. I desperately love every person who's walked out these doors. I can't keep people, and I sure as I can't grow this church. I love you. I'm calling you to walk out unity in a very real and gritty way. I'm asking you to lay down your life for people around you. I'm asking you to be edifying. I'm asking you to be patient. I'm asking you to be tenderhearted. I'm asking you to mature to the full stature of the level of Christ Jesus. And in order to get there, I'm asking you to put on the armor of God or we're going to destroy each other. I love each one of you. I could have got up here and preached all kinds of dumb stuff today. I've got more stuff in my head than you would ever care to know. But I needed to share these things with you. Interject in here. Um, this, is a, this is a beautiful moment. I know Nathan's not done too. He's probably going to have a closing point here. Um, this is a beautiful picture of why this church is a special place. Because um, as Nathan comes to us and he talks to us about, you know, the, the vulnerability that he's giving us and showing, the struggles, it is, it's something that I've experienced firsthand. I don't know how many of you guys know, but when I first came back to the church, Nathan is the person that took me under his wing and, and mentored me, really pulled me through a lot of stuff. And then when Nathan came to start this church, um, I was 100% in his shoes at that point without him. And I, I witnessed firsthand what it's like to be a pastor and to have people come to you in need and how what I want to express right now is how what you're feeling, what you're seeing, what this is, is when you're in leadership of a church, we really do carry the burdens of a lot of people on our shoulders. We try hard not to. I know Nathan tries really hard not to as well, but it adds up. And it's, it's not that it's 
an unbearable weight. The Lord does make our burdens light. But it's overwhelming. And it's one of those things where we are seeing it practiced here at this church with unity. But we're also not seeing it on a scale that is like relieving of those burdens in a worldly sense. And um, today, even in, in the devotional that I gave, I, I, I had a topic and I switched it fully about talking about forgiveness. And I think, what's, I think it's really important to remind ourselves in this time that when you see leaders of the church, they don't have it all together. And quite simply, it is very overwhelming. So much to the point where I, I don't have the words to explain the, the feelings that it takes. Every Sunday, you know, I, I pray the same prayers many, many, many times. And, and I think to myself all the time, well, that just sounds the same old, same old. You know, it's, it's, we're going through the motions. So I pray, let's not go through the motions. And my point is that we're here to reiterate something that is truth in, in the Bible. We are here to speak something that has already been spoken in new ways. And forgiveness is one of those things, but also just the fact that we are people. Nathan is just a person. He's got wants and desires that are outside of this church as well. He deals with things. He's, he's burdened by things. But also, like he said, if <laughs> I'm trying not to get too emotional here, but if I could tell you one thing about Nathan, man, he really does mean it when he says he loves you guys. I really hope you can understand that. Because as somebody who has gone through many church hurts, who has been, speaking for me, has been actually wrongfully done in multiple situations and have to deal with that kind of hurt. Nathan's always been there for me, regardless. So when we're saying that we're practicing unity and things like that, I just, I just want to emphasize how special this actually is, that we can have a church service on a Sunday morning and be this vulnerable with each other. We can have this time together. I think that we've, we've romanticized what church can look like. This is what church looks like. This. Not a flashy worship team. Not a, uh, uh, just a message full of Jesus loves you. Hard truth like today. Vulnerability like today. That's what this is about. So I'm, I'm going to let Nathan finish with what he has to wrap up. But I want this to be a reminder. Guys, we need to pray for our pastors and pray for our leaders continually just continually it doesn't need to stop you don't you, you don't know the the weight that people are carrying on their shoulders until it's until it all comes out and we need to make sure that we're walking alongside each other but that was a beautiful moment i really wanted just to for our church to acknowledge that doesn't happen in other places at least that i've been part of I love you guys, and I I didn't actually expect that, and I'm grateful for it, and I just would like to say that, you know, I don't know how I get to talk with I when I can't get it out without crying, but I've gotten to the point in ministry and in life where 
I've become very, I know this is going to be hard to believe, I'm far more quiet than I used to be. That's saying something. Anyway, I have become far more quiet and I am far more withdrawn. Um, I apologize for that. I'm not sure that that can change. I, I've tried. Um, sought counsel, worked through some stuff. Um, I've become far more quiet and far less extroverted than I've ever been. Um, and some of that's just maturity and some of that's growing up and I'm grateful for it. I want to, I want to grow up I want to look the way I'm supposed to look. Um, but that doesn't change hurts. It doesn't change uh, the wrestles that we go through. So I appreciate you um, enduring my, my heart cry this morning. Um, I'm with Adam, though. If the church can be a vulnerable place, where it's not just our polished best, where our church is not just the Instagram versions of ourselves, um, but the Monday morning when the kids won't get up and you've got to leave for work selves, right? Those people are not as cool, are they? No, but that's who we are. And so... um, I do hope that if I can accomplish anything that the the church would become more and more vulnerable and care for each other in genuine ways, listen for each other's hurts, expect each other to fall short, but to be compassionate and loving and gracious with one another, to really work hard and fight for unity in the way that Paul talks about to recognize who the real enemy is, not each other. To seek forgiveness, to give forgiveness, to be a sweet aroma to our Heavenly Father. That's, the, that's what I hope to accomplish. So I'm gonna pray for us and uh, ask the communion teams to come up and we can partake and then You guys can hang out, head out, whatever it is that you have planned. So, Lord, I thank you for the day that you've given to us. I thank you for these moments. I'm not terribly sure, Lord, how I feel about being as vulnerable as I've been, but I pray that you would use it well. I pray that it would not be viewed negatively but father that it would be viewed for what it is just one more follower crying out i i pray that you would bless our day continue to bless this church continue to grow us the way you see fit i pray that these communion elements would be uh, very very clearly seen for what they are points to remember what you have done for us 
the way we're supposed to love each other, you already displayed, you already modeled when you laid down your life for us, when your body was broken for us, when your blood was shed for us. I am grateful for that, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here would remember it well. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.